0: Progressive Casual Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Welcome to Inside the banjo a podcast exploring Roots Music's great artists. Please do rate and subscribe. It makes a huge difference. And let all your friends know to listen. This is Enda Scal from Irish bluegrass crossover band Wee Banjo 3. Before you freak out, don't worry, there's actually four of us, and mostly just one banjo. That's me. My guest today on the superfluous fifth string is an Irish radio personality, the artistic director of Temple Bar Trad Festival, and a banjo player of great renown, largely due to his work with the incredible Irish band Stockton's Wing. Please enjoy my chat with... Kieran Hanrahan. It's a pleasure to introduce Kieran Hanrahan, uh, one of Ireland's best known and I think best loved tenor banjo players and somebody who has been at the forefront of the development and the popularity of Irish banjo for many decades, I think Kieran without uh, making it sound too old, but uh, that, I think that's a fair a fair assessment.
1: Well, fair play for a man. That's trying not to make me sound so old. You've done a fair old job <laughs> on that. Fair play, and the... no, but fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I st- I, I was I'm playing banjo since the seventies and the early seventies at that. You know, I was kind of a teenager before I when I, when I started. Born in '57, so I started playing when I was about fourteen years of age. So yeah, I, I, like my life in the banjo does go back a long while. And like that time when we started, when I certainly started playing. There were very few, even when you started playing yourself, there weren't really, there wasn't a huge population of banjo players in the country, but there were less so when I started playing back in the seventies. But yeah, yeah, it does go back a while. And yes, I am old. Take a look at the head.
0: (laughs) Take a look at my head. Where, where did you come across the banjo? And as you said, I started playing banjo in the eighties and there were very few banjo players and I heard the banjo and I went, I love this and I have to have it. Um and even at that time there was there weren't that many people playing banjo, so I can only imagine in the seventies there were even less.
1: There were less. And I think no more than yourself, my re- my reaction was exactly the same when I heard it. Now we had a, a record of the Dubliners, of course, most houses had them at that time. There were few enough LPs doing the rounds so that would have had a bit of traditional and folk music. The Dubliners were amongst that cohort. So we had an album, so I was I was sort of let's say exposed to the sound of Bernie McKenna. Uh, when I was very young. We were also, being from County Clare, very familiar with the Kilfenora Cayley Band, and of course Jimmy Ward was the banjo player with the Kilfenora. So No More Than Yourself, it was the attraction of the sound. Uh, I was in Tuna at a county flat, it's possibly 1970 or 71, and uh, Enda Mulcair was playing there. He's one of the Legendary Mulcair family from Crochin. I'm sure you know Desi and uh, the late Brendan, of course. But their father was a fiddle master uh, who travelled the, the country teaching music. He was the first man to set up classes in traditional music in the country with the VEC and cultists. Jack Mulcair was the man that designed that originally. Uh, but uh, so, and, and the reason I, I mentioned Jack was he was on my father. He thought I should be playing the fiddle. He thought I'd, I'd, I'd make a fiddle player. I played the tin whistle and the harmonica uh, before that, but uh, Jack thought I'd make a great fiddle player. But I was actually attracted to the sound of Jack's son, which was Endemolker, who played at that Flair in Tuna in the early 70s. And I heard it live for the first time there. And I knew then that was the instrument that I wanted to play. I really knew nothing about it, about its setup or anything. Uh, my parents eventually got me one, an old John Gray, and I went to Jimmy Ward actually from the Kilfenora for him to tune it up. Uh, he was working in Limerick, so he'd come coming through Ennis. My father knew him. He was in the building thread. And uh, as he was driving through Ennis, where would we meet? Outside Kelly's Pub there on Carmody Street. He just opened the, the 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 car door, took the banjo, tuned it up for me, put it back into my black plastic <laughs> bag, and headed home. It was never going to be out of tune again. So that was <laughs> how it started, you know.
0: And what's a what's a John Gray? I've never heard of a John Gray banjo. Uh,
1: it was a a collector's item. Uh, no, it was just one of these cheap banjos that was made. I bought it in. I think it was my my parents got it in Sabins music shop in Limerick. I, I, I didn't hold on to it because I, I, I went from there to a Framist because Desi Mulcair, who was a brother of Endas, uh, he brought me to Rafteries in Galway to get a Framist banjo. And we thought we'd never again see a poor day with banjo sound once we had the Framist because it was a bit of drive in that, a metal-y kind of drive, but it was in it.
0: And uh, What did you make of the, you know, there was a, there's a big bar at the bottom of the Framist on the tailpiece. That always uh, bothered me. I could never get my hand into a place where it didn 't hurt. It seemed to be this an incredibly difficult banjo to play
1: um, well uh, we were kind of told when we were setting it up actually to press that right in against uh, the skin of the banjo you know that you you 'd improve its output if it was <laughs> okay this was the this is the science we had at the time so so it was quite low behind the bridge for me, and I, I used to play a fairly low bridge anyway, so it didn 't. Uh, it didn't affect me too much, but I felt that the metal on the banjo itself used to kind of you know, almost cut into your skin. If you sweated at all, uh, the metal kind of degenerated, or at least the outer coat did, and then you'd have all these kind of marks in your hand from playing. But now, it didn't bother me from that point of view. I just settled into to kind of playing it as I got it. It was recommended by, by Desi. He had one. He played with Joe Cooley at the time. And I had the honour of of meeting Cooley as a young fella, and we kind of based our music around what Cooley was doing. He was only home for a year, let's say, before he passed away, but he was a legendary figure, and uh, Desi kind of introduced us to him as well. So uh, all that whole scene uh, for us as kids, uh, we were absolutely blessed that we had those kind of connections. But there was a guy called Sean Horn, who was from Manchester, and he was living in Ennis, and he actually uh, unravelled, let's say, the playing of Bernie McKenna for me. He was a banjo player, but like not a, a virtuoso, but he was able to understand what Bernie was doing. And of course he then started showing me what to be how how I should approach it. Kind of listen to Bernie doing this, listen to do him doing that. And I remember I had a plectrum it was nearly it was nearly like a button. It was so hard because we couldn't get it loud enough, you know. And <laughs> uh, he just said to me, look, why don't you just try a softer plectrum and if you want to play really loud, get a microphone. So that was his advice to me at the time.
0: And was there much uh, was there much teaching at the banjo? I mean, did you just bring it home and start picking away at it? Did somebody say you need to do this number of downstrokes and this number of upstrokes and alternate them?
1: No, there was none of that. Uh, I think what what Sean did point out. I met Barney, in fairness, like uh, playing in a concert in Scarla. He played out there with the Dubliners, and so you were picking up tips uh, as as you went. But there was, no, there was no technical approach. Uh, Sean possibly was the man that kind of said what Bernie was doing and how he was getting it, and that everything wasn't under downstroke. There were upstrokes, that you, you know, all this kind of stuff. It was brand new. I actually went out to Frank Custy that played the banjo. He learned, he, uh, he taught an awful lot of music in tuna. Frank did. But he told me that he went to Jack Mulcair's classes. He was amongst the first students. And he wasn't a musician, he was a hurler. But uh, he picked up the banjo and the fiddle, and he learned, whatever he learned from Jack Mulcair, on a Thursday night in Ennis, at the Tech at the classes, he brought to his classroom in tune the following day. And that's how Frank kind of developed his teaching of the instrument, or the music. But he played the banjo, and when I had mine tuned, and back in the bag, and back at home, uh, we went to Frank Costi to say, no Frank, I have a banjo, what will I do next? Wow. So he just said, well, why don't you try, why do not you try Paddy's Return? That's what he said to me. And so that was the very first tune I actually learned on it. And because I had the music in my head from playing harmonica and mouth organ and whistle, uh, there was no problem with sourcing tunes, but it was to actually get the, the tune that might be easiest to play. So he said, play Paddy's Return. So that's what I did. But there was no, there was no, there was no kind of, there was no, certainly no formal teaching, Might informal, picking up a bit here
0: Hmm. And do you think you were lucky, Kieran, in terms of the technique then that developed naturally for you? And I say that because having taught for many years, I would say that maybe 40% of banjo players will naturally pick in a down-up, down-up fashion uh, that doesn't cause too many problems. And about 60% don't do it naturally and they, they actually have to learn it. I would think that I was very lucky that I just did it that way. Uh,
1: yeah, I'd say you're. I'd say you're. You're right on that. I'm surprised at the number of people actually that don't figure that. But it's fair enough because it's a. It's a. It's a, Like in in Irish traditional music terms, it's a new instrument. Roque okay, was there in the, the 20s, as we know, some beautiful banjos that were made uh, to accommodate it. But it really kind of it never made its way to Ireland, it's very loosely. Until you know, there was an odd banjo here. Jimmy Ward started playing in about 46 or 47. So, so uh, uh, um, Jerry Lynch, the box player with the Kilifenora, told me that. Uh, Jimmy started playing about 47, and uh, previously he'd been a flute player, but he had problems with breathing and whatever, so he switched to the banjo. So that was really, and then uh, the kind of banjo within music ensembles that say uh, it wasn't exactly the lead instrument it was more percussive and it was sort of rhythmical so uh i, I so so there was so little uh, knowledge on how to adapt it people played banjos that were tuned in the strangest of ways as well because they got plectrum banjos and five string banjos with no small string and you know whatever way they got it that's the way they kind of went after it you know <laughs> so there was a bit of order let's say by the time i started playing small. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean you would you would obviously have known Pat Costello the late Pat Costello. And I remember Pat many years ago saying to me that uh banjo had a very uh, organic entry into the tradition and into music in general because if you were to take uh, fiddle and accordion and flute that they came via a virtuosic tradition in Europe you know in classical music and so the method for playing was well well established but that banjo came in a completely different way and here we are you know 30 40 50 years later and only now I think that there are methods being established to say you know what if you do this this and this it's going to be a lot easier than if you just take it up and start battering away on it and hope for the best
1: yeah, I, Pat is very astute man, uh, and sadly, that it's the late Pat now at this stage. Uh, very, very sorry to hear that he passed away. But he was very, very astute, very knowledgeable, and understanding of the tradition and you know how it has emerged and that. So, and I think that's a really good, a good explanation from him as to how where the banjo is and and where it has come from. It is in relative terms still very new, like if you, any fiddle player that ever played. Uh, whereas some of the old boys didn't kind of get much into the technique of it, but you can see that there was an established way of playing anyway. Uh, today's generation of fiddle players are much more informed by some of the kind of uh, classical, let's say, teachings in how to hold it and how to use the bow and stuff. We're still, we're, we're still a little bit to go, I think, with the banjo and that. But we're we're, we're on the road at this stage. We'll get there, Ender. We get there. And, uh, we get there.
0: <laughs> so you you did some academic study uh, a number of years ago. Was it specifically on teaching methods?
1: It was. I, I did a master's in DIT. It was 2011, which I can't believe now that <laughs> it's that long ago. Uh, and I was well not past my by that at that stage. But I just had an interest in this, you know, uh, because I wasn't playing as much. And I'm done, I play even less now. I do a bit of teaching and stuff and meet people for a few tunes. But at that time, I think I was teaching maybe at various summer schools and classes and stuff. And I used to find if teaching something to kids um, that they may be having a difficulty with a tune or a triplet or a set of triplets or whatever. And I'd say to them, well, why don't you try it this way? And they'd say, oh, my teacher told me not to do it. And it wasn't exactly that their teacher told them not to do it a certain way. It's that the teacher told them to do it this particular way. So I would say, fine, but why don't you just try this and see if that actually enhances what you're doing. Can it get you over the hump and invariably, you know, should get there, but they're thinking, um, you know, maybe just a little bit behind. So um, it was in coming across that really with sort of teenagers playing, young lads and young ladies that had been playing maybe for a few years and they were going along a certain path. And I was kind of saying, well, you know, if you keep that path, it does probably heading to a dead end with that. Uh you know, so and it wasn't in any kind of arrogant fashion, it was just really to try and maybe enhance what young people are doing. So that's really uh was my motivation. So I decided then to have a brief look at the history of it. The history of it is massive. I have books here about it, but just how it evolved and came into Irish traditional music. I spoke then to some of the people that had played Uh, Like Liam Farrell and people like that who had played, let's say, in in the past in traditional music in the 60s. Barney, I didn't get a chance to do the interview with him, even though I had plenty of conversations over the years. So then I decided to focus on those that are teaching. So, you you know, Theresa O'Grady, of course, one of the great uh, female banjo players here in the country. Brilliant. Uh, And Banks, equally as good at teaching and playing. I spoke to Tom Cusson, whom you know really well, uh, a great pioneer. I suppose for the tenor banjo in traditional music. So Mick O'Connor in London, Jerry O'Connor here. So I spoke to about maybe ten or eleven people who are established players and teachers. A lot of them teach. And uh, uh, Jodie Moore, who's in Australia. So all these these people, uh, I spoke to them and just asked them about how they were teaching, what they were doing. Is there any, you know, is there uh, are there commonalities between them all? They were to a point, just like, a bit like what you were saying earlier, up to a point, and then it kind of diverges. And that's fine. Uh, everybody has their own way of playing and their own way uh, technique to give. So there's a part of information in there now as to how people play, but still, like, not a definitive. I wouldn't be definitive about if I was talking to people about how they should play. Yeah. But it was very interesting. I looked at how they were holding the plectrum, how they were holding the banjo, uh, what way they sat themselves, all that kind of stuff uh, when they were when they were when we were in conversation, and and uh, one person said, "Look, nobody, everybody can't hold the banjo the same way because all bodies are different shapes." So I said, "Well, fair enough. I, mean, I I take that as, as your experience in that." So that's really that's that was my approach to it.
0: Was there much in terms of body mechanics that came into the teaching methods that you came across that would. Very much play a role in in classical violin. I'm, I'm thinking of and flute and you know the whole method of breathing and posture and all of that.
1: It's funny there was very little of that in my study, and I know uh, some of the some of the teachers were were you know aware of that and how you hold your posture and all that. The whole breathing element and kind of controlling your your body and the flow through your body that really didn't come into it. And it's interesting because I like let's say if you're talking to Tom Cosner or myself or, or Mick O'Connor, during that generation, uh there there was none of that. We just played. But you know, that's that's it. You had the music you played. But it's a it's an interesting one. And that's why I say that we're not, you know, we're we're not there. We haven't a definitive approach yet. That's that's another layer that needs to be explored for myself. Just to breathe, I'm happy for this stage. <laughs>
0: Indeed, <laughs> it's funny. I gave my first book to Tom um, to have a look at because I set out, like in in really strict is the wrong word, but in very technical detail, a method that I know that works if you start with it or if you adapt to it. And it's not the only method, and you know you've you've, you've touched on that because many methods will work, but this is one that absolutely does work. And uh, after Six months, I was back out to Tom, and I said, "What did you? What did you make of the book, Tom?" "I don't know." "Sure, I couldn't be doing with that kind of thing, you know."
1: <laughs> well, it's funny. What I find amazing about Tom, uh, and he has done so much for the banjo. it's does uh, no doubt its evolution as an instrument and its place now. Uh, he's done fantastic work. But when I spoke to him that time, actually, I was talking about techniques, you know, left hand, right hand, all of that. He told me. Like, we all learned, like, we, we picked it up as if the fingering was fiddle fingering. So you use your three fingers and your little finger for the high B, let's say, first string, and for rolls, that kind of thing. But then a technique came in where people were using their four fingers, which Sully in Manchester was, he was a kind of a pioneer of that uh, initially. And uh, I spoke to him about that. Uh, so when I was talking to Tom about this, he, uh, he like, in... You know he's well mature let's uh like myself a little bit older he said that all the early tunes that he learned with the three finger technique but then in the last 10 or 15 years he's learning this four finger technique so any new tune he learns with the four finger technique and if he's playing one of the old tunes he goes back to the three finger technique when he's playing so yeah. so that's why i said what what the point that you're making about that whole sort of how you kind of conduct your body and hold your body when you're playing I think that needs to be explored and uh, for the instrument to kind of move on to the next step.
0: Uh, there's a, an American banjo player called Buddy Wachter. I think I played a video many years ago for you. And uh, now the music is technically amazing. Like it's almost ununderstandable understandable how he does what he does on a technical basis. But I, I bought his DVD many years ago when people had DVD players. Um, and he talked all about body mechanics like the first half of the uh, the tutorial was about relaxation, breathing, how breathing drives oxygen through your muscles and keeps them supple. I thought it was fascinating. And then I watched Chris Thiele, the American uh, mandolin player, and he did a tutorial when he was like 14 or something like that. And again, it was all around body mechanics, you know, posture, making sure that you don't have too much tension from the top of your head down through your elbows and so on, because it it has such a huge impact on the picking. Essentially, uh, I think it's a huge part of Irish banjo. And uh, I like I do a lot of workshops, and I I, I often start with breathing. <laughs> and you can uh, you can take the temperature of the room fairly fast when you say that we're we're going to talk about uh, yoga breaths now when you're playing the banjo. <laughs> yeah. It makes such a difference, Kieran. It really does. No, no, I agree with you.
1: But uh, for my generation, certainly playing like and, and and I would say for the older like people who played traditional music on fiddles and any any other instrument, they picked up the instrument and they played. <clears throat> you know, it was about the music rather than the instrument. If you know what I mean, we liked the sound of the instrument, but we were trying to knock the music out of it. And that's 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 really where where I kind of came from uh, musically. It's when I be teaching, I work with third level students now in college and they have all access to all of that sort of stuff so i still just work on on the music but there's no doubt uh, i just feel that there's so much more to be done uh, on that and to get people to kind of relax those muscles I, I often think of joe burke on the accordion playing and there was well there was certainly no greater i mean he was he's an elderly man now but he was certainly a pioneer and he was he was brilliant, even generations after him still couldn't kind of do what he was doing, but I often thought when he was playing the accordion, if you saw Joe playing away, he'd be absolutely just stunning music coming out of it, but he'd throw the shoulders every now and again. I often reckon that was getting the flow back in, you know, to the body, even though people thought, oh Jesus, the shoulder kind of going for the tune, but I reckon it was that sort of relaxing the muscles, give them a chance to kind of kind of work back into the their posture again. So, so there's something in it. it, it it's, there's no.
0: Jesus, Mary, and Joe Burke.
1: <laughs> well no doubt he could be he's certainly one of the Trinity anyway, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> Kieran, take us right back to Stockton's Wing. Um, I mean a hugely influential band. Like right out on the edge of tr- the tradition. Actually probably way past the edge of the tradition in in many ways, you know, a Celtic rock band before such a thing even had a title. Where where did the idea come from to marry very traditional Irish music with rock and roll?
1: Probably that's, a, well, a, 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 a few different things there, I would say. Uh, Morris, Paul and myself, uh, Morris, a good friend of mine, Paul, wrote Morris the fiddle player, uh, Paul the flute player, Paul's my first cousin. Mm-hmm. Uh, we played a lot of music together. Uh, Morris came visiting to Ennis, and we played with the Flannuas and all of that. So we'd, we'd meet and play tunes. So we liked what we were doing. We were kind of younger, kind of brash, young fellows playing music. Kind of you know, you know, a bit of attitude, maybe I don't know. But we kind of we we kind of came together, kind of musically. When in the seventies, uh, like bands were forming, you know, Clancy had just emerged. Uh, band van going from the early 70s, Dead Don, and we'll get closer to what our sound would be. Uh, so, so there was almost a license to, to form a band, and that's what we did. We formed a band because people formed bands, basically. You know, it was something more to do uh, with your music. And we liked each other. I knew Tommy very well. Uh, he was living in Limerick at the time, but he used to be a lot of his time in Ennis. That's the Bauron player. And Tony Collan was our guitar player. But I had played in a group with Tony Collan. And Noel Hill and Tony Lennan before that, group called Inchy Quinn, uh, made one record and that was it. It it ended. So Tony Morris, myself, Paul, Tommy formed Stockton's Wing. And it was, it was it was it was it was ambling along, let's say, because there was an excitement and a rush in the music, you know, that we loved playing uh music together. And when we got to studios to do a bit of recording, and the first one very, if you listen to the first album, it's pure. It's just pure trad, arranged in some way. Thanks to let's say the likes of Ordia, they kind of give new license to do that kind of stuff. But when we got to studio in the late seventies, maybe eighty, eighty one, uh, we were Mike had joined the band by then as a singer, so we were it was kind of evolving. The sound was evolving, and we were doing a few songs that weren't exactly traditional songs for sure. They weren't anything near traditional songs, but we were adding a bit of percussion uh, and some bass and PJ Cortes was our producer and PJ is just a man of great wisdom uh, when it comes to music and what might work and what doesn't work with stuff. And we learned so much from him in studio. So we were doing all sorts of things in studio, trying to make sounds. And I suppose the fear at the time was, well, if you're doing it on the record, you have to be able to reproduce it on stage. Uh, but we kind of turned that a little bit on its head at the time, uh, even though we we fell into that way of thinking afterwards. But we we, did, we felt we didn't need to be doing every single thing that we were doing on record because there's a live vibe about what you do as well. But it really evolved through an album called Light in the Western Sky. Ah, <laughs> there's an album. album. Uh, so it kind of started there. Mike wrote Beautiful Affair and Walk Away and stuff like that. So the drums had made their way in. Basically, in studio and bass. Then Steve Cooney joined us playing the didgeridoo and he was playing a fretless bass. So suddenly we were kind of on the move. And like everything else, it evolved. It certainly wasn't a plan, it just evolved.
0: Was there any pushback, Kieran, from the traditional community at the start or at, a, at any point? There was a
1: bit, but it didn't. Because of, I think, because of our pedigree. Uh, Morris, Paul, and myself, and Tommy, we, we came out of that. We're, we're, we're no matter when all is said and done, we're traditional musicians, and that's what we came out of. So, we had such a ground, our roots are there that are sort of unshakable, let's say. So, we had that sort of credibility. Older people are probably looking aghast at us and saying, What in the name of Jesus are they doing to the music? But the younger crowd, I mean, the younger people were getting interested, the audience was getting broader. And I think maybe it served a kind of served traditional music in that way. But yeah, there was a little bit of pushback. But in general, no, because I think our credibility as trad musicians might have carried the day. And I know you're kind of calling it Celtic rock, which is probably what it was, but there were other bands doing Celtic rock music, but they were coming from a a rock background. We were actually, we were coming straight up and out of the earth as traditional musicians, enhancing what we were doing with other instruments. Producers and whatever else that worked with us kind of dressed up what we were doing musically.
0: And the the red headband, Kieran. I mean, it need, it was awesome. Like it doesn't matter how you look back at it. Like it's it has uh, it has stayed relevant, but it's a it's a fantastic uh, it's a fantastic clip. Do you look back at that and go, "What an amazing time!" Or what was I thinking?
1: Uh, I look back at it now, and, and I know what my kids are saying when they're looking at it, <laughs> <laughs> and it isn't that. <laughs> uh, well, it was what it was, you know. I had mad hair. I mean, you wouldn't think it now, but my hair was mad anyway. It was long; it was going everywhere. Uh, so I, I used to kind of wear the headband. But uh, John McEnroe used to wear a headband at the time, so people were kind of equating it with that. But fortunately, I never got to to uh, to, to sample McEnroe's innings. And his his uh, financial backing uh, through my <laughs> efforts in traditional music, but uh, yeah, you know, it was just it was what it was. You are on stage. It's a, as you know yourself now. Uh, playing traditional music or playing any kind of music is fine and it's great. But uh, when you go on stage, it, it's a different thing, you know. So uh, so you kind of you, you try and adapt. We we know. I don't think we ever kind of compromised on the music. We stretched it. There's no question about it. Um, but we may have may have compromised on the look a little
0: (laughs) (laughs) do you you look do you you look back at that time and do you remember kind of inhabiting a certain persona because i've looked at the videos and like it's rock and roll in any guys like it's really really upbeat it's high energy and you got all the shapes and all the swagger it must have been a fantastic time
1: it was a fantastic time, but well, Jesus, we were acting the maggot more often than not, you know what I mean? It's just really, th- that's about it, you know. And you get the audience, you kind of get into it, see you doing something, so you kind of do it again and more of them get into it. That's all. You're just playing to the audience. Uh, you, the music was taking care of itself, you know. But, I mean, you you wouldn't achieve, let's say, that sort of, um, sort of audience reaction by just sitting there looking at the floor, which is what traditional musicians did uh, up to then. We, are, we were actually confident enough in what we were doing and how, you know, capable we were as musicians to be able to kind of take on that and have a bit of fun on stage while we were doing it. And I think, uh, I think that there's probably where there might be a difference from you know yesteryear, is that young traditional musicians now coming through are a bit more confident about what they're doing. It's cool enough to be playing trad music, so they're they're a bit more confident about what they're doing. Maybe at that time we were a bit different because we showed that sort of brashness or whatever it was. I mean. I've seen Wee Banjo 3 on stage not that long ago, and they were fairly leather into themselves, you know. So, you know, license to dance.
0: Yeah, we had to take the headband off, Martin Howley. Yeah. <laughs> 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 did, uh, did Stockton Swing make any uh, recording contract mistakes? There were so many stories of that time.
1: Yeah, we, every every recording contract I say we made was possibly a mistake, to tell you the truth. Uh no, we've never had really we've had I've certainly had very little out of that whole thing. Now, I'm a long time gone actually. I left it, believe it or not, in about nineteen ninety or ninety one. So I mean that's thirty years ago gone. Uh there's um Universal Records have just picked up the the original recordings now and kind of remastered them and done something with them. But uh, I, I wouldn't be holding my breath. I mean, they're a good company and they'll put the thing out there. But I've I've kind of I've, once I moved away from it, I left it behind me. Uh, we, we, it costs us a fortune at times. You know yourself now. Uh, when you're working with a band, uh, it's great. Your the income is pretty good. Everyone's doing fine. There's a any day. Not as bad as what has gone on for the last. Uh, eight or nine months but there's a rainy day coming so you make some provision for that and then you also make provision for what you're doing either on stage or going into studio so we kind of kept investing back in trying to get you know more out of it but let would say our very first record that we made we signed the contract and the the i think i think the word was that the record company would endeavor kind of to pay a royalty and of course you can endeavor doesn't mean you have to
0: did did it come to a natural conclusion? Did it just run its course? Did you get fed up with the lifestyle, or did something else come along that was uh, was more intriguing?
1: I, 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 I tired of the lifestyle. To be honest about it, uh, like things were different. Now, things were very different. Uh, if you could, like, I mean, there's Arts Council and there's grants and there's Cultural Island, as you know, and there's all these bodies that are helping artists to kind of get there music out and across the world there was none of that when we were so you were depending on income and like we used to cross the atlantic in the 80s we might go across to the states maybe three or four times a year and we never did long extended tours we were never interested in those uh we might have done one once and just decided this is certainly not for us but it was just that constant over and back and then kind of conditions weren't improving I mean the gigs weren't getting any bigger it kind of can reach some sort of a plateau uh, we couldn't kind of make inroads where we wanted to and and the lads were still enthusiastic about it but I just got tired of it uh, and I just said I came I in I kept out of it I didn't know what I was going to do so but I just I had kind of reached a point in my own life where I felt uh, I probably needed to get away from that as, as a lifestyle a life on the road look I enjoyed every minute when I was on the road. Every minute of it, the crack was mighty. But we got into it without having a. It's a, a business plan or a game plan. We got into it, as I said earlier, because that's what you did uh, with bands in the seventies. You made up a band and you went off and played. So we didn't have really a, a master plan as to how we'd kind of get through. Uh, so once we got to, once we got to about nineteen, maybe eighty-eight, nineteen, we went to Australia, New Zealand. Fantastic tours there. Uh, and then back out to the States, and I thought, uh, I kind of have probably seen enough of this uh, at this stage, so I I, I, I I, kind of was in the band for about six months after I had made the decision, I spoke to the lads about it, and they were cool, it was so a grant, you know, but let's you know, ease out of it and get somebody else uh, to fill in there. I enjoyed it, but it was time to move on for me, and I came back, uh, I did nothing for a while, I couldn't believe how... Uh, bad my playing had gone, actually. Really? Yeah, which was interesting uh, because it it had gone rough, you know. Uh, Maybe somebody said, sure, Jesus, it was always rough, like. (laughs) But that was was as a result of playing in the band, and then I was playing a lot of mandolin and not enough banjo, and then when you're playing banjo and you're acting a maggot and you're not taking your music seriously, you're just banging away. And So when I sat down to actually play uh, and to do something, just to play a few tunes, I felt it just wasn't going. It wasn't going to where I wanted it to go. Uh, and how that came to highlight itself was Tommy Hayes asked me to record a couple of tunes. He was putting a, a solo album together. He asked me to record uh, a couple of selections with him. And I went to do it, and I, just, I I wasn't that happy with what I did, I have to say. So I kind of I decided then I, I'd try and retrace my steps a bit. I never got back to maybe where I was. Well, I wasn't expecting to go back to where I was anyway. But I tried to retrace my steps and try and understand what I was doing. And it wasn't a, wasn't a bad exercise either.
0: Yeah, I think that is part of the price that's paid by playing in a band that's very loud or playing very loud music at festivals. I mean, I played with Stockton's Wing for about a year and it's, it, it's incredibly loud on stage. And even with Wee Banjo 3, you know, we do big festivals. It's loud. Uh, and your playing is is affected. It's I, I don't know that it's uh, avoidable in any sense. I look at the bluegrass players, the really great flat-picking guitar players, and they, they don't seem to be affected the same way. And I do believe that they train that lightness in their hand, and then they, they don't sacrifice that regardless of the volume that they're playing at.
1: I just think that you, you try to be... Well, what you become then is part of a sound. Uh, you're kind of unique person and music is almost sacrificed to the the band sound that's okay that's that's you know that's what you sign up for but it's maybe to understand that i didn't understand that till i was kind of finished with it you know Mm. so that's why i kind of i kind of retressed my steps a bit so it's interesting that it's loudness yeah
0: yeah so you you came out of stockton's wing had you a qualification in Anthony kieran and what did you go heading off doing and how did you end up doing what you're doing now uh,
1: I had no qualification in anything. I had studied computer programming actually in in RTC Galois, the Regional Technical College. I'd done computer programming there, and then I gave that up to become a professional musician. You know, <laughs> uh, as as you do. But um, no, I decided then uh, after when I when I started working and trying to figure out what I was doing, I decided well I'll, I'll make. I think I'll make a, a a CD. I think that was about and that was. You know that that was about 97 i'd say yeah it was around that time uh we had two young kids with uh, two-year-old and a baby i think connor so wh- while they were i was looking after them at home my wife was working and so i started to do with of practice uh, at that stage so it was a few years before it kind of evolved uh and then i think in 97 i, I decided let's say in 95 i'd make an album Uh, But I worked on it for a couple of years each day because I was downstairs with the kids, just doing a bit of playing and uh, kind of developed to make an album. But in 91, at that time, uh, I had put a tape together. I travelled with Peter Brown. I should have played a few tunes with Maureen Fahey and Tommy Hayes down in Wexford. And Peter Brown was coming down to record it for radio. So uh, during the course of the journey, I was talking to him and saying that I wouldn't mind to try and get into radio. Because I had a reference from Oliver Perry, who was our uh, manager when we were on the road. He heard me doing an interview uh, one day on radio and he said, Jesus, there's great timber in your voice. <laughs> now anybody else has said there's great timbre, you know, but he said there's great timber in your voice. Uh, have you ever thought of radio? I said I hadn't. So anyway, uh, the long and the short of it was I made uh, a demo tape. And Oliver comes back into this because he had started Century Radio, which is an independent radio station in Dublin, and said to me, look, if you ever want to do anything or, you know, try out in the studio or do it, he said, you know, be sure you can can come in and join. So I had access to a studio there, and I just started introducing bits and pieces and uh, made this tape eventually and sent it into RTE, and I was invited in. I actually got... Voice training, it wasn't really voice training, but it was training because they couldn't change my accent anyway. Uh, but it was kind of at the end of of that era in RTE. There were you kind know, of trainers and delivery people and this kind of stuff. But what I was advised was, uh, you know, because you you start writing these scripts that are just oh, just gorgeous English in them, you know, but it's not the way you speak, you know. So I did a bit of this, and, and I remember the woman said to me. That's not the way you speak. It's great, but it ain't the way you speak. So go back and write that link as if you were speaking it, so, which is what I did and really started developing from there. So I presented a program called the Flag Club uh, for a couple of years. That went by uh, the board. The RTA changed their policy from specialist music programs to broader music programs. And then a vacancy came up on Cayley House. And that's, oh, that's 26 years, ago, nearly 26 years ago. And uh, I was asked you know, if I'd be interested in taking over Cayley House, which was a program that had been running for the previous nearly 40 years. So uh, it was a bit of radio history, I suppose. So I, I, I started on that and we started traveling. I have to say I was in my element because we were traveling around the country back to the places where I might have played tunes myself as a young fella, seen all these new generations and the older generations. And the whole environment was where I came from, so back there working. So we've done that for the last twenty-five and a bit years.
0: It's fantastic. Mm. And I yeah, love now, it I must say Yeah, I mean, and now you're very firmly established as the voice of Kayleigh House.
1: Well, that's, I suppose after twenty-five years, but who knows? I mean, uh, you know, uh, with the way radio is and the way things go, uh, you know, the they kind of it's cyclical too, kind of radio. You know, people new people come in with new ideas so that kind of changes so you never know where that goes but let's say i would be happy with my output over the last 25 years i've enjoyed it i really have loved the whole idea of getting back into the environment where i came out of
0: what do you think of kelly bands mightn't even be able to answer that question as a, a musical oddity, in my opinion. And I, I'm, I'm not saying whether they're good or bad. And, and I know that people absolutely adore them. And I'm thinking of the Irish Session And you're in the pub and everybody's playing, and largely everybody's playing the same tune in a completely different way. And it might go seven times and it might go eleven times, and then it goes into seventeen more tunes, and it's free, and it comes up and it comes down, and people leave and they come in and they come out, and it's the magic of Irish music. And then you have Stockton's Wing, which is, you know, choreographed and it's exciting and it's driving and it's playing for the audience. And then you have a Cayley band where they're trying to match the bow strokes so that they look the same. And you have a drum that's keeping everybody together and a block for the second half. It's it's a very unusual thing that exists in Irish music, I think. I don't know anything about the history of it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Look,
1: uh, I, I I was brought up. Uh, Kelly Band, they, they were there. For, they're there for dancing, you know. If, if you listen to some of the, no, it's a bit more homogenized now in the sounds. They were very different if you go back to the fifties, sixties, seventies. Bands had different sounds. The Bridge Cayley Band, like, had four fiddle players, unheard of, you know. Uh, and they had four fiddle players because they couldn't contact the banjo player when they were putting it together. So they got another fiddle player. That was Owen Hackett. He was. He was supposed to play with them, but they couldn't contact him because you wrote a letter to somebody at that time if you wanted them to come somewhere. You know, times have changed. So they had four fiddlers, let's say. Uh the bands over in County Low, I can't think of the name and think of it again. Piano accordion sound. There was a there was a there was a particular Cayley sound that was kind of Fear Cayley, 16 Hand Reel, all this kind of stuff. Then there was the bridge, then you had the Kilfenora driving sound there, man. John Lynch has the greatest expression that he got from his father, actually. He said he, he often said, his father often said, uh, when he'd hear them playing the new version of the band, he'd hear them playing, he'd, he would mightn't like it, he'd say, your job is to put them through the roof, he said, not stick them to the floor. <laughs> so that was his definition of good music, so good driving music. But then you go to the Tuller, and it's a different swinging sound. If you consider the likes of Joe Cooley played in the Tuller, Paddy Canney, P.J. Hayes, all these great musicians that played. Um, Mike Flanagan, Dave, um, drummer from from, uh, uh, West Clare, actually. Uh, Brilliant Mick Flanagan, brilliant drummer with beautiful swing in his music. They were very different. They are a bit more homogenized now. Kilfenora are still uniquely the the Kilfenora. I worked with them on uh, on a couple of albums over the years, and they have a particular sound and drive and a tradition, and that's what they okay, it has expanded, but the core of it is still that. The Tuller, if you listen to the Tuller, that whole swing is still in their music, you know, it's just in it, there's a way that they play, like, like, get Martin Hayes playing fast, you know, (laughs) Uh, you know, but the way Martin has when he's playing slowly, there's a beautiful swing and the movement. Well, it's that kind of speed it up with the tulla, just, There's just something. There's, and if you hear the tulla there and you hear the kylfenora, you can hear the difference. Uh, in competitions, and so, the Shaskine, I mean, in fairness, there were, Tom, uh, there was a particular sound, but it was kind of a banjo driving sound, I think, anyway, was what was the distinction in the Shaskine. So there were different bands that... Uh, um, okay, they play in competition and they go on the clog box for the uh, sort of middle eight, let's say, and then they're back onto the drums. And it's very organized and that, but I know people that get involved in this. It's like being involved in a team. It's like representing the parish. It's just, and I can't get over the amount of younger people that get involved in this and highly accomplished musicians and have sacrificed their, you know, Solo kind of persona to be part of a, an overall sound, so it's good. You need to hear some more Kayleigh bands in there, I think.
0: <laughs> I should have asked you years ago. I'm intrigued now. You make it sound really intriguing, it's brilliant. Uh, I mean, I I,
1: I I go to the All Ireland Senior Band Competition each year. Uh, Oshie had the most beautiful Kayleigh band one time. They they played, they won in All Ireland and then they kind of drifted away, um, which was very different from a lot of other Kayleigh bands. A lot of them are driving it and hitting these strong notes and yeah, yeah. it's just, it's interesting to hear how they kind of build up within a tune and then bang, hit that change of the reel, you know, it's just great crack. And you hear the audience is kind of just rising to this all the time. It's a bit of crack. It's a bit of fun in general, you know, but it's, it's brilliant. It's just great to be around it to see it.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. I think the, the rebel without a clue, banjo player in me when I was 13 or 14 and was being constantly told you have to leave out all of the trebles and play with everybody else and I was like I don't like this this is (laughs) this is ridiculous and I never got to experience what you're talking about. No I
1: get that I I get that that may be just that may be just now we're talking about teaching earlier on it may be just down to you know it's just kind of slight misdirection and that but I I would understand too that the individual isn't fully catered for within it so that's about what you do with the tune? Then usually the box player is the driver, uh, the fiddle players kind of lay the layer, and then whatever else is there, was a concertina or uh, a flute players. Uh, it kind of it sits on that kind of layer, you know. they the, the the fiddle players like the is the the the, the kind of silk that sits on top of the accordion, and everything else sits on that, you know. And the drummer is there, and the piano player is there, and it's between them it is, boom boom. And away you go. <laughs> I, I love, I love the crack that's in it. You know, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, at the flare in Trondheim a couple of years ago, there were two Kelly bands from Japan, uh, Japanese natives that put two Kelly bands together, and you know they gave it a good old shout. I must say, mm. so it's a bit of crack. It's nothing, uh, nothing more than that. I would say over over. I wouldn't. Love her. I, wouldn't uh, I think if you're involved in it, you're, you're, if you get inside it, you see it.
0: Yeah. What's next for you, Karen? Have you? Do you play an awful lot of banjo? Do you play much very
1: banjo? Yeah. no, very little. I play a bit. I mean, I have a banjo. I've got. A, I have a Dave Boyle, as you know, uh, and God be good to Dave as well, who passed away last year. Was the, the, the whole sort of banjo community were, were shocked. Dave went and Pat went uh, last year, but uh, Dave's banjo kind of actually gave me a new, a new impetus. Really, he was developing them. He used to come over here with them, and he often, he often quoted me. Actually, he, he'd. Make a banjo, come over, So what you think? And a bit teeny or a bit, you know, hollow in the sound. All this kind of stuff was going on for a couple of years. And then he arrived at four one day, and uh, they were all slightly different. I picked the one, but I had kind of a, a and tone in it. And that really, that's what kind of got me back interested in playing. To be honest about it, I was encouraged because it was a decent Irish banjo and playable. I mean, Tommy was in, Tom Custon was in, but Dave was here, Kerryman living uh, just outside Dublin city so and I knew him through another friend of mine so that's how it, that friendship and the banjo kind of developed with Dave but that's really what kind of got me back playing uh, uh, kind of encouraged me to play but uh, I, I meet some friends for a few tunes out in the pub which you can't do which I haven't done for nearly 12 months now and I do a bit of teaching uh, online Uh I teach students in college uh, and outside of that very little I did play a bit here I decided God I'll, I'll do what I did 25 years ago, do a bit of playing, try and analyse what I'm doing, but that only lasted a couple of days, you know, with this pandemic. And, ah, jeez, I've enough of that. But Fine. I enjoy I have a lovely dearing banjo player, a uh, banjo, a calico that I play as well, and it's a beautiful sounding banjo. It's just beautiful here in the house. Mm.
0: Finally, Kieran, what's your, fa- your, 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 your favourite phrase to describe a banjo?
1: Well... It's not my phrase, okay? But it was thrown at me one time by, I don't know, you know the legendary Patsy Hanley.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, he said to me one time, we were on a to tour in 76 or 77. He said, Hanrahan, I wouldn't like your banjo. Why is that, Patsy? Tis all being a no effing bong. <laughs> <laughs> so that was his, his description of my mind of playing. And I'd say about 20 years later, I met him somewhere uh, up in and I said, do you know, Patsy, this always stuck with me as a phrase. You said it. He couldn't believe he said it, but he said, did I say that? I said, you did. Yes, I don't remember that, which is a good one. <laughs> and it certainly was that. So all being a no-bong, and I suppose I could describe playing polkas on a banjo as all being a no-bong. I find them difficult to play.
0: I... Completely agree, and have uh, had a lot of crack with banjo players who love uh, playing polkas, because I think they're absolute nonsense on the banjo.
1: Well, they're a state of mind, you know. You've got to get there to play them, you know. Yeah. I like polkas, but I don't like playing them. Yeah, indeed, indeed.
0: Kieran, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, a, a wonderful trip back through the your your banjo history, which is fascinating, and you know it's worth pointing out what a huge influence you have been on Irish banjo and on the journey of Irish banjo and the continuing development of the banjo in Irish music.
1: I want to say thank you for saying that and I never can set out to be an influence you never know if you can influence a few people to get to the next step I think is what you're looking at always uh, because I always expect the next generation to be doing a bit more than we did and if that's the way if you leave that sort of uh Positivity there. I think we've done something, but I never set out to do it. I was selfish, I was a banjo player playing the good tunes.
0: Thank you for listening. If you loved this episode, please head over to our website, webanjo3.com, to subscribe, rate, and do leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. See you next time inside.
2: progressive
0: presents adjusting to the suburbs
2: i never thought i'd care about gardening until i bought a house in the suburbs but now i find myself in conversations about liquid fertilizer and i wonder am i the fertilizer guy now (laughs) no no way everyone knows the ratio between phosphorus and nitrogen right yeah i'm still totally
0: cool Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football